Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come now and open your word, God, we thank you for this entire experience of worship. Just the chance, the opportunity to come together with our brothers and sisters to acknowledge, to lift up you, our God and King. God, we pray now as we open your word and as we look to it for wisdom, that you would grant that wisdom, that you would grant understanding. And um, God, we are just so grateful to you for how you've seen us through so many things. We pray that you continue to do so. Watch over the health of, of each member. Watch over the, the needs um, in this very chaotic time, Lord. We love you. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. So I've spent the last several weeks talking about finding peace in the midst of chaos, uh, trying to discover and understand um, exactly what God's word, what God would have us do in such circumstances. Um, I want to transition now to a subject that's connected to that, but uh, slightly in a different uh, direction. Um, so for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to talk about suffering and a, developing a theology of suffering and exactly what that looks like. Um, I've always taught, I've always told uh, ministers and so forth who um, are uh, who God has placed in my tutelage or whatever you want to call that, um, that the midst of suffering is not really a time to, to address that. When people are in the midst of sorrow and grief, they're, they're really not ready for uh, a theological discussion of the issue. The emotions are still very raw. The situation and circumstance is still very difficult, and so it's hard for them to hear anything um, in, in, those in such an environment. It's important really for us in those situations just to be there, just to love on people. Um, but I think the current situation we're going through, the current difficulties we're going through is a little bit different in that I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think it's quite as emotionally charged as, you know, significant, unless, of course, um, you are in the midst of actually dealing with the, the condition. And so I, I feel a little bit of comfort uh, in that, in addressing the situation. And to do so this morning, to start us off, I, I want to talk about God's role in suffering. What is God's role in these circumstances, in these situations? I want to look at two passages in particular uh, we'll look at several, but two are going to kind of drive our discussions. Ruth chapter 1 um, and Daniel chapter 3. And so if, if you'll just have kind of those two passages uh, available for you, uh, I want to look at those. Let's start in Ruth chapter 1, looking at the first five verses. It says, During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land, and a man left Bethlehem and Judah, with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory, ter used to be able to say that word, territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of their two son of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband Elimelech died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth, and they lived in Moab about ten years. But both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. 
So you have these opening verses here, and as you look at them and you read them, the question that, that comes to mind is, why did Elimelech and his two sons die? What is it that they gave rise to this? What is it that, that ended with that result? And, and there's really two ways you can interpret this. You look at the text. I know some who look at this and see it as the judgment of God, that this is God's judgment on Elimelech and his two sons. And and there are some reasons to, to, to see it that way. Some of the verbs that are used uh, where it talks about she was left and they remained and the, just the location of Moab itself, which is uh, outside of Israel, which is uh, had an origin that was not altogether appropriate and so forth. Um, they suggested that they had moved to a sinful place. And because they moved to a sinful place, because they abandoned the, the promised land, because they abandoned where God had had them, that this was God's judgment on them. Now others say, no, no, this isn't a, a, a case of God's judgment. This is just the circumstances of life. This is just life in the world that we live, in the fallen world that we live. And, and, and there's good reasons to go that way as well. The book of Ruth is set as a contrast to the book of Judges. It even starts with that during the time of the Judges. And, and when you look at the Judges, the book of Judges, it's a very dark time in Israel. Uh, leadership, they're all sinful. The people, they're all sinful. It's a very corrupt, very wicked time in Israel's history. And, and given that, given, given such a, a dark situation, given a, a time where it's fine, it's hard to find anybody with integrity, anybody with righteousness, anybody with a godly lifestyle in Israel itself. Can we really say that living is, leaving Israel during that time would be something that would be marked as sin? Given that everybody in Israel was sinful? I mean, read the book of Judges sometimes. Not through the lens of these are a bunch of Israelite heroes, because they're really not, but through the lens of what is really going on here. And you'll see... There's not a story in there, not a single story in all the book of Judges that portrays Israel in a good light. Not one that portrays Israel's leadership in a good light. It's just not there. And so knowing that about the environment, knowing that about the situation, to see them move away from that is not necessarily a negative. What's more, what does Elimelech mean? What does his name mean? His name means, my God is king. That doesn't strike me as a name of a person in scripture that you would look at and say, yeah, he's probably not acting with integrity. He's not acting with righteousness. Okay, he's a, he's, He represents that. And his two sons' name, Malon and Kilion, their names mean sickness or sickly and death. Okay. Which, what, leads us more toward the circumstances of life. These are two boys who, from very early on, were apparently not healthy. Hence their names. So which is it? The passage can go either way. Which is it? I think that's the point. I think that's the point. I think the writer could have made either one of those viewpoints very clear in how they wrote this. They could have said, and God judged Elimelech for his sin. And then the situation's clear for us. 
Or he could have made it clear uh, another way. This was not because he'd done anything wrong like we do, like he doesn't, like the writer does in Job, where Job didn't do anything wrong. But he doesn't make it clear. He makes it, he leaves it ambiguous. And I think that's part of the point. We don't always know why things happen. We don't know why certain things happen in life, why certain griefs and certain sorrows and certain hardships come our way. There is no reason necessarily that we can pinpoint. There's a reason, but there's not one that we can necessarily pinpoint. When you look at the greater picture of, of suffering in the Bible, there's, there's really four reasons that are given to us why people suffer, four reasons why we see things happen the way they do. Number one, it's our sin. Sometimes we suffer because we have sin. You see that with Saul. You see that with David. You see that with Ananias and Sapphira. Okay, Saul, uh, this man who was pulled out of Israel, made Israel's first king, and yet his disobedient acts, one right after another, in chapters 13 through 15 of 1 Samuel, lead to his downfall. His disobedience leads to his loss of his children, loss of his own life, ultimately. When you get toward the end of Samuel, and he goes and visits the witch of Endor, and the judgment is proclaimed there, tomorrow you'll be with me, Samuel says to him there. David with Bathsheba. And that whole set of circumstances. His, his behavior, his sinful behavior, um, <coughs> mistreating her the way he did. Killing Uriah and so forth. That's what? It leads to judgment on his house. His children are going to fight amongst themselves, Nathan says. They're going to kill each other. He's going to be shamed that way. Ananias and Sapphira, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Therefore, judgment is upon you at this moment. That is how the Bible sometimes portrays the suffering, the difficulties that we deal with, our sin. But that's not the only way. And, and, and we, we need to be careful that that's not the first way we necessarily jump to. Because that's what we often do, right? Something bad happens and we say, what did I do to deserve this? What sin is in my life? I may have shared with you all before that I had a, a student when I was in seminary who um, he just started passing out. He, he'd be in class, he'd just pass out. He'd be walking across campus and he'd just pass out. He was, he'd be going down the stairs in the dorm and he'd pass out and fall down the stairs. Just out of the blue. There was no signs. There was nothing he could do. He wasn't like he could, oh, I'm getting dizzy. I need to sit down. He just, boom, he was out. And he got a visit one Sunday, uh, one day from several of his friends, seminary friends. They knocked on his door and they said they'd come in and he thought they were there to kind of pray for him and whatever. And first thing out of their mouth was, just tell us what your secret sin is so we can deal with that. And so, You'll stop passing out this way. God will forgive you. First of all, that's not very pastoral. I hope none of those guys actually ever ended up in churches. But that's that's where our mind goes. That's where our, 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 our thoughts often go. What is the sin that's causing that? That does happen. There is judgment for sin. But when we jump to that, we take the prerogative, we take the position of God, and we announce judgment that God himself has not announced. We need to be careful with that. 
if if a sin is involved, it will be immediately apparent that this sin led to that event. If you don't see that, if you have to start searching for it, I have to suggest that's probably not the answer. If you're searching for a connection between a sin and your consequences, that's probably not the, not the answer. The second reason we suffer is other people's sin. Someone else makes a decision that's sinful, that's wrong. The very first death in Scripture is an example of this, Cain and Abel. Abel was a righteous man. Abel was a man who served God, who, who sought to follow God, who sought to honor God in everything he did, and his brother killed him. So Abel suffers there. Adam and Eve suffered there. Not because of anything they themselves did, but because someone else made a sinful choice. Because someone else carried out an act that brought harm to their lives and their experience. And again, we see this in examples throughout Scripture. We see this in our lives today. Sometimes we suffer, we experience difficulty, hardship, grief, because someone else has made a decision that's sinful. The third reason we suffer is that it's just the circumstances of a fallen world. That when sin entered into the world, it corrupted creation. It, it altered circumstances, and suddenly viruses and other things like that became a part of our reality. Romans chapter 8, 22 says, For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul there is saying, Creation itself is crying for it. It's reaching out for it. It's longing for relief from the impact that sin has had on this world. And so it's not a connection necessarily between the, 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 a, a particular sin that someone has done. It's just the environment we live in. And we long for the day when Christ comes and transforms that situation, that circumstance, makes as Revelation 21 says, all things new. And then the fourth reason is sometimes it happens for God's glory. And this one, in some ways, is difficult for us because it's hard for us to imagine that our difficulty or our hardship or our grief would be for God's glory. But that's, in fact, what we find in Scripture. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, there's, there's the go-to. Did his parents sin that he's born blind? Did he sin that he's born blind? What is it that, what sin was there that caused this? And Jesus answered, answers quite strongly, it was not this man's sin or his parents. Neither. Neither one of those is the reason for this suffering, for this difficulty. But he's blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. That God might receive glory this day. That you might come to understand who I am this day. 
And it's in those environments, in that situation, where it's hard for us to, to hold on to. It's hard for us to see and understand. But it, it's in those environments, in those situations, where we have to see the bigger picture. God's glory is always preeminent. God's glory is always the greatest of all circumstances and situations. And that's what we need to push toward in responding to every one of these categories. In responding to every one of these situations, we need to keep in mind God's glory. And so what do we do with what we know about God and suffering? Number one, we know that we don't always know the immediate cause. And so therefore, we must trust God. And that's, that's, that's not easy sometimes. I've been through some circumstances, some situations, losing loved ones, my youngest diagnosis before he was even born, what they told us would be the nature of his life and so forth. He wouldn't be able to talk, wouldn't be able to walk. And you all see him every Sunday. He talks sometimes too much. <laughs> and he can walk and he can run. I had a memory on our, on our um, come up on my Facebook a couple days ago. Uh, he participated in Special Olympics several years ago. And um, he, was in, he was in the... I can't remember how long it was, but it's a hundred meter walk or whatever. And he he was disqualified because he ran. He was supposed to walk and he ran. And I remember reflecting reflecting on that thinking, they said he wouldn't even walk. And here he is getting in trouble for running. You know? Um, we trust God. We don't always understand. And there are still a lot of difficulties involved in that and so many other situations, so many losses that I've experienced. There are difficulties there. There's hardship there. There's hurt there. There's pain there. That's real. That's understandable. But in the midst of that, we learn to trust God. If it is our sin that's caused it, we do what? We repent. We place our life in His hands and we say, God, here I am. I'm sorry for what I've done. And we trust what? First John 1 and 9. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We trust that. That he's going to do just what he said he's going to do. If it's other causes, if it's one of these other situations, we rest in his arms. We find comfort in his embrace. And we know that he can turn that situation to his glory. He can turn that circumstance to, to, to his proclamation. I remember when my dad died. He died fairly young by most standards. Um, not real young, but fairly young. He was in his, uh, he'd just turned 70. Um, and I remember sitting at his memorial service. I gave the eulogy, and then my brother, who's also a pastor, gave up, came up and, and gave the sermon. And um, my brother said during the message, I, I don't know why 
dad has died. And I don't know why this has happened the way it's happened. I don't know. I don't understand those things. And he said something along the lines of, I can't remember the exact words, but something along the lines of, to his, to my brother's siblings, he had nine siblings. He says, I know some of you are not believers. And he said, if any one of you, however, came to Christ because of what well, my dad, because I had to lose my dad, be worth it. Sure enough, his younger brother, his next younger brother, wasn't a believer, and he went home and he talked with his son, who was a believer, and his son led him to Christ. And so my uncle Neil, the crazy one of the family, is now a brother in Christ with me, and he loves the Lord. He spends time in God's Word. He spends time reflecting upon those things, things that he previously ignored. Trust God. We put those things in his hands. And as we do so, we do so mindful that it is in his hands, and that may not always work out the way we want it to. In Daniel chapter 3, we have the story of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Now, we prob you probably know them better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But I don't like using those names because those names were given to them when they were taken into captivity in Babylon to honor Babylonian gods. If you read Daniel 1, you'll, you'll see that. They're Jewish names. They're names that honor the true God, or Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And so that's why I prefer to refer to them, to, to honor the true God. I think that's part of the narrative, but we won't go there. This is just a this is the famous story of the fiery furnace. They've been challenged to uh, to to worship the image of the king, and if they don't, they'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. Pay with their lives for the difficulty that they've caused the kingdom for their disobedience to the authorities. And the king brings them to the situation, to, to the environment, and he says, you're about to go in. This is your last chance. Bow down now, and all will be good. And this is their reply, verses 16 and 18 of chapter 3. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, but if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Notice the three things they say here. These are, these are important aspects here. Number one, God can deliver us. We believe God has the power. We believe God has the, the ability. He has created all that there is. He, he holds all the world in his hands. He can deliver us. Number two, we believe he will deliver us. 
We believe. We have faith, and we're acting on that faith. We're stepping out on that faith to say, we believe that he's going to do that. We believe this is what he's going to express, what he's going to communicate, that he's going to reveal to you and to this court and to everybody in Babylon that he is the true God. We believe that. But third, something that's often overlooked, he may not deliver us. It's possible he chooses not to. Even if he doesn't, they say, which is an acknowledgement that perhaps for his glory, for his purpose, for, for his expression here in this kingdom, whatever it is, perhaps God chooses at this moment not to deliver us from the fiery furnace. That's a possibility they held out. And I think that's important in terms of this whole aspect of faith and name it and claim it and all these other things. They had the faith. He can deliver us. He will deliver us. But if he chooses not to deliver us, that doesn't change our stance. Because we are proclaiming the truth of who God is. We're proclaiming what he has called us to proclaim. We're proclaiming who we know him to be. We're proclaiming we're, we're living out this life of commitment. Wherever he leads us, we'll go. Whatever he calls us to, we'll do. Whatever he expects of us, we'll carry out. Where else can we put our trust but in him? If he chooses not to deliver us, Obviously, that doesn't make us altogether happy at that moment. But where else can we go but to Him? He is God. And at the end of the day, our theology of suffering must be grounded in the knowledge that He is God and we are not. That's the starting point. That's the continuing point. That's the finishing point. Not that we shrug at the situation. Not that we say, oh well, whatever will be, will be if Allah wills or if God wills or whatever. That's not the mindset I'm talking about. I'm not talking about fatalism. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael didn't have fatalism here. He can deliver us. He will deliver us. But even if he doesn't deliver us, we're going to obey him. We need to have a mindset that says if I can identify the cause and I can respond to the cause, I will. But if I can't, or even if I can, all along I'm going to trust that what man designed for evil, God determined to be good. That what whatever man has devised, whatever life and circumstances have thrown my way, whatever sin has thrown my way, God is bigger than that. He's God. And I can trust Him. 
with my future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, God, I know there are some in this room that are that are reeling, that are hurting. I know there are some who are confused and who are dismayed and who are struggling. God, I, I wish I had the answers to all of these circumstances. I wish I had the answer to this virus. I wish I had the answer to, to how we're supposed to react to every situation that we come across. But God, you just have not granted me that wisdom. But God, I do know this. And I pray that you help us each to understand that you are on your throne. That you do love us. And that you are with us in every circumstance, in every situation. We'll see us through this because that's who you are. Lord, may you be glorified in our responses, in our attitudes, in the demeanor that we reveal to the world around us. May we show them how great and awesome you are. Place these circumstances, these situations in your hand because there's really no other place to put them because we know that you will take care of them. And it's for your glory, for your kingdom that we pray these things. Amen.